Hello and welcome to the Faber Podcast for October 2010. Both books featured in this programme are concerned with questions of how you capture the essence of real lives, get under the skins of real people, and escape some of the constraints of conventional non-fiction and biography. How can you borrow some of the novelist's techniques and still remain faithful to your subject? And both authors come up with their own unique solutions, as you'll hear. Later in the programme, I'll be talking to Francis Spofford about doing justice to real lives in Khrushchev's Soviet Union, in an era when red plenty, a superabundance of goods, an end to hardship, seemed to glitter enticingly on the horizon. My first guest, Norman Abrecht, is interested in doing justice to the life of one man, Austrian composer Gustav Mahler. Norman is a Whitbread Prize-winning novelist, as well as a highly regarded music critic and cultural commentator. He's the author of a dozen books on music, among them The Maestro Myth and Maestro's Masterpieces and Madness. He is, it would be fair to say, unafraid of venturing bold opinions. That much is already clear from the subtitle of his new book, Why Mahler. It reads, How One Man and Ten Symphonies Changed the World. The book itself blends biography, told in the urgent present tense, personal recollections and travelogue, and fascinating anecdotes and asides, to get at the essence of Mahler the man and the musician. And throughout, the question, why Mahler, propels us forward. Why the huge popularity after years of posthumous neglect? Why the sense of connection that so many feel on encountering his music? And why does music a century old still seem to speak to us so urgently today? My first question, though, was a more straightforward one. I wanted to know when Norman had first encountered Mahler's music. When I reached the point in my life, my late 20s, where people start to look for spiritual satisfactions in music, where it's not just the happy tune and the one that gets the girl and the one that twangs your heart springs. When you're looking for something deeper, for something to engage with life's big questions of long-lasting love and 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 conception and child and illness and death and, and, and all of those things. Orchestral music began to speak to me in a very big way and I would go to a lot of concerts and I, I had trouble finding out what was going on because I'd never studied music properly and most of the reviews and the books that I read were written in musicological language which was really intended for other musicologists uh, and didn't relate in any way to the life that I knew. And then I picked up Alma Mahler's book, Memories and Letters, published in 1939 in German, at the time when she thought that her husband was going to be completely forgotten. He'd been obliterated in all the lands occupied by Germany, which was most of Central Europe. He was uh, not just unpopular, but derided and mocked in the United States by the people who controlled music there. He'd been wiped off the map, and she writes this book in which her ambivalent is so passionate and I felt I needed to know how somebody could 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 have such strong and divided feelings about someone, a musician, a composer to whom she'd been married. And from that point, I started listening to the music and was enthralled because what I was receiving was not the very direct discourse that I heard from Beethoven, Brahms, Bruckner, Schumann, Stravinsky, everybody else. The composer has something on his mind. He tells you what he wants to say through the orchestra. With Mahler, he's telling me several things at the same time. He's giving me, at one and the same time, an intellectual challenge and emotional catharsis. How can that work? All head and heart working together and working against each other and more. And so really from that point, from at the time that I was 30, half a life ago, um, I just kept asking, why Mahler? Why Mahler? What, what on earth? I No, no. I asked, why Mahler? What, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this here? What, is it, what, what does it mean? And then, why Mahler? Why this one of all composers? Why is he absorbing so much of my attention? Why is he speaking to me of the things that really matter in my life? One thing that you emphasize in the book is the fact that in his music he can he can be saying something but also be saying its opposite or there there's no clear, easy, single interpretation. Things can be happening at different levels in terms of the meaning that's being conveyed to the listener. The most important thing that Mahler does, he does immediately on becoming a symphonist. He does it in his first symphony, and he 
That is to introduce the concept of irony into music. Uh, irony is a literary device. It is essentially, if you follow Dr. Johnson's definition, saying one thing and meaning another. It's a way of indicating an alternative meaning to what it is you're expressing. And it's a tremendously useful thing to do in a difficult social situation and, of course, in an impossible political situation where you can't speak out, but you have to sort of pay obeisance to the political correctness while actually holding the other message underneath so that people understand you don't really mean what they think you're hearing. Mahler introduces us to music in the First Symphony. He does it in a most ingenious way by taking what appears to be a nursery rhyme, putting it into the minor. We know, we know it in English and French as Frère Jacques, in German it's Bruder Martin, putting it into the minor, converting it into a funeral march, sending it thudding along its way to the cemetery, and then twisting it around so that it becomes a kind of revelry, a party, an orgiastic dance. And there are all there are these three ideas that are working together with each other and against it. What is this? Is it a child's funeral? Is it a party? Is it is it military? Is it civil? What's going on here? Beneath all of this, Mahler is giving you his own story, which is that as a boy, he saw his brothers and sisters carried in coffins out of the back door of the family pub, while in the front of the pub, People were still singing and drinking and having a good time. And he's yelling a protest at you. He said, these, 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 are, these are children. These are my brothers and sisters. You can't discard these lives. 55% of children died under the age of five in the, in, in the part of Europe where, where, where he was brought up. It's still an intolerably high number in many parts of the world. Mahler is speaking up for the child and saying every life, no matter how young, no matter how small, no matter how old, has value. He's speaking of, 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 of that value at both ends. The ways that we begin life nowadays in a test tube quite often, and the ways that we end it nowadays by a doctor's decision to flick a switch. The essential value of life is what comes into Mahler's first symphony, but he doesn't call his first symphony life. He doesn't get up on a soapbox and start preaching or ranting. He doesn't start a blog. He uses this vehicle of irony to give you parallel messages, and the message will become more complex, more multilinear, as that particular movement progresses. And he's saying to you, think about it. And at the same time, he's saying to you, feel it. Feel the pain, feel the rage, do something. Now, tell me, Norman, about the importance of his Jewishness, because one of, one of the most shocking things in the book is reading just how flagrant, blatant the anti-Semitism was in the in the press in Vienna, and also looking ahead. I mean, Adolf Hitler has a small walk-on part in the book, but we're only a few decades away from you know from from terrible cataclysm. Tell tell me about his relationship to to, to Judaism. Mahler wouldn't have been Mahler without his being Jewish. He wouldn't have been born in the place that he was. He wouldn't have moved to the town that he did without there having been restrictions on where Jews could live in Central Europe and what trades they could follow and what languages they could speak and how they used those languages. And his grandparents, for instance, were unable to marry, to have a civil marriage because there was only a quota a fixed number of Jews who were allowed to have a civil marriage, so they had to live officially in sin, although they had a religious Jewish wedding. These were the humiliations that the Jews suffered in Europe through many, many centuries, and it was only the slight easing of these restrictions that allowed Mahler to move from a godforsaken village called Kalisht or Kalishta into a slightly larger town called Iglau or Yilava and to grow up there. Being Jewish was innate to Mahler. Uh, going to the synagogue was innate. His father was chairman of the synagogue education committee. He knew Hebrew. He had a bar mitzvah. None of these things have been reported before. Nobody has actually followed 
Mahler's ancestry, who has any knowledge of Judaism or Hebrew, or most importantly Yiddish, which was the lingua franca of his parents and his family, and almost certainly the first language that he heard. And Yiddish has a very, very particular type of irony. It has a very particular way of saying one thing and meaning another. It's a language of the oppressed. It's a language of people who have to hide their feelings and their dealings from the host community. And so they develop this kind of secret code between them, which is a linguistic code and it's an expressive code. Almost any phrase that you say in Yiddish can, by changing the inflection, mean it's very opposite. Almost any phrase in Mahler can do the same. So it is, it, it's absolutely a part of him. He knew it. He was never in the slightest bit ashamed or disowning of it. He always presented himself as a Jew, even after he converted, converted to Roman Catholicism in order to get a job at the Vienna court opera. To be a court official, you had to be Catholic. He did the necessary in order to be that. But in coming out of the church, he said to a passing friend who said, what are you doing in there? He said, I've changed my shirt. The inner man is untouched by all of that. He was a Jew in his very, very direct dialogue with God, which is never mediated by priests or any other kind of minister. And he's a Jew in some of the phraseology of his music, which can be traced back to Hebrew and liturgical cadences. That doesn't mean he is a Jewish composer. A Jewish composer is something very narrow, like an English composer. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a limiting thing. But he's a composer who is Jewish, and his Jewishness is important to him being a composer and to expressing himself in the way that he does. How difficult is it to grasp the man's character? I was, I was struck by the recurrence of the comparison of him to a flame, to something that was burning. That seemed to come up again and again. Alma, his wife, said, if you get too close, you'll get burnt. And that, that energy, that sort of burning energy, seemed to characterise him, even when he was ill. You know, there's still something about the intensity of his feeling and everything. So how difficult was it to try and grasp the, the nature of the man? Uh, the energy is terrifying. It's it's all consuming, and you think, where where does all that come from? Except perhaps from his own acknowledgement that life may be short, and that he needs to cram an awful lot into it, and that he mustn't waste a minute. He never wastes a minute in his walk, his afternoon walk from home to the opera house. He makes sure that he's accompanied by professors from the university who can clue him in on the latest advances in agronomics or history or philosophy or whatever. He needs to have his mind stocked all the time. He doesn't have an idle moment. And these are terribly difficult people to deal with. We know some of them around us. They tend to be borderline manic depressive and they are impossible to live with but at this together with this intensity is this really childlike charm there's a boyishness to Mahler there's something that makes you want to stroke his cheek there's something that makes you want to hear what he has to say and know that if you were to tell him about your troubles he would listen he would actually listen. You think, if Beethoven came knocking at your door, or Mozart or Schumann or anybody, you wouldn't know what to say to them. You'd feel so removed. But if Mahler happened to be sitting opposite you at the dinner table, you'd be completely absorbed. You'd be firstly absorbed in the man, in his aura, in his magnetism. You'd be absorbed in what he's saying. And you'd be absorbed by his interest in you because his, and we have this in so many different testimonies from young people, that his, his eyes sought them out. He wanted to know, you know, what what's ticking? What are you reading? What, 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 what's, what's being published? What, what have you seen? Have you been to the theater? Have you been to a gallery? What, What's going on in the world? That sort of thing. You see this sometimes among the most impressive conductors. They will walk into a rehearsal room with a strange orchestra and they'll pick somebody out in the back row and say, oh, uh, Smithson, it's Smithson, isn't it? Yes, yes, of course. We did, um, what was it we did? We did, uh, we did the Shostakovich second in Milwaukee. And of course, the whole orchestra sits up and thinks, well, how on earth did he know the second tuba player? <laughs> Mahler had that way of, of embracing everybody around him. And I think he must have been quite a compelling character to know. One can almost hardly wait for the afterlife when one gets a chance to meet him. 
<laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite touching, I thought, the way that he really is champions too strong a word he champions the music of Arnold Schoenberg although he admits freely he doesn't really understand it but he's still supportive of what he's trying to do I think that's an amazing relationship uh, Schoenberg is incredibly rude to Mahler he's dismissive he's loud he's his music is is doesn't sit easily in Mahler's ear and he fidgets sometimes to to hear it he can't understand it on the page but he has a sense that Schoenberg might be the future. He sees Schoenberg as the struggling young musician that he once was, and he's prepared to back a hunch. He thinks this young man clearly needs support from someone, and he supports him in all sorts of, of, of furtive ways. He actually arranges to buy his paintings anonymously so that he'll have enough food on the table for his family. And he encourages him to do what he thinks is right, just to go his particular way. And Schoenberg has his input to Mahler. Mahler begins to listen, begins to understand. Nobody understood this, the Seventh Symphony when Mahler first produced it. He did it in Prague in 1908. Everybody came out of it bewildered. The one person who got it on first hearing was Arnold Schoenberg. He heard the modernism of the piece. He heard how it was possible to do things with the guitar and mandolin that, that operated at the very edge of conventional tonality. And, and these are instruments that crop up all the time in Schoenberg's works. He heard also other frictions and other forms. He thought, yes, composing in five movements is much better than in four. All sorts of things. Schoenberg got Mahler, and Mahler starts to get Schoenberg in the 10th symphony, where the fence between tonality and atonality disappears. disappears. Mahler is no longer working in any clear tonal signature. And you can see that he's beginning to share a world with this, this, this young, turbulent, often intensely unpleasant protege. Alma Mahler is another very big personality that walks the pages of the book. You describe it at one point as a fame-seeking fabulist. So I guess that, that, that indicates a bit of where you're coming from. How complex a character is she to, to try to capture on the page? She's much less difficult than Mahler because she's less creative. She's non-creative. Mahler was hopeless with women. He had his mother fixation. He adored his mother. He saw her brutalised by his father. He was powerless to do anything about that. So that diminished in a certain way his self-worth as a man. Here I am, unable to protect the woman that I love most, who is my mother. And it shadowed all of his relationships. And it may explain why he had to marry a woman who was barely half his age. He was uh, 41 and she was 22. Alma was very bright daughter of an artist who had died young. She knew that her mother was not faithful to her father. She knew that the sexual mores of society, the official sexual mores, didn't apply to artists and to people in her family. She had that window of beauty that some young women get just at the very end of adolescence and, and, and the beginning of their maturity. She had a period where she was irresistible where clearly, and you can't tell this from photographs, but clearly men would follow her on the street. She was, she was a magnet. She radiated something and it didn't last. <laughs> but Marla was smitten by whatever it was that she emitted, fell in love with her. She fell in love with somebody who was more creative than her father and who could give her instantly a position in society that was the wife of the director of the Vienna Opera. She was suddenly going to be, there was no empress anymore. She would be the most important woman in Vienna overnight. That she couldn't pass up. So I, she's not that complex to understand, but her relationship with Mahler is never easy. Sexually, it's never easy. We know this from her diaries. And Alma told screeds upon screeds of lies in her memoirs. She doctored the letters that she published. She muddied the trail in every possible way. And the one thing we can be grateful to her for is that she kept her diaries and they're in a vault in Philadelphia. And you can go and consult them and compare them to her published tastes and then see where the real truth might lie between them. So she was honest with herself. And in Dear Diary mode, we get to know who the real Alma is, and she's a very troubled woman. She's having dreams about snakes crawling inside her. She's having 
torments about killing her children. She accuses Marlowe of predicting the death of children. She, it's actually her own psychosis that is at work. She would have had to spend a good few years with Freud in order to get rid of these things. So she's, she's complicated in the way that entrails are complicated. They go in and round, in and out, and round, and round, and round, and round, and round. But, but uh, she's quite easy to read in the way that a stomatologist can read the entrails. <laughs> you must sometimes meet people who are Mahler agnostics. Mm. How, what do you suggest to them as the best way to approach Mahler? Because they see people who have been bitten and smitten and mm. perhaps don't yet share it. How, so how, how would someone who's open-minded but not yet converted get themselves in the right place to really begin to understand your enthusiasm for him and other people's? A lot of people have a resistance to psychoanalysis. How would you persuade them to go into analysis? It, it, it's not an easy question because it, it really depends on the individual and where you think their sensibilities might lie. I think all that I would say is just listen. Just try to listen without prejudice. Just go on your own at some point to a Mahler symphony. Try and see if you can find three empty seats and sit in the middle. <laughs> so that you're not influenced by those around you and just see if you feel anything and if you don't leave it and come back some other time may not have been a good performance you may not have been in the right frame of mind for it i think everybody's affected by Mahler in different ways i think if you wanted to hear Mahler's breathing to hear the way in which he is encouraging you to find more organic way of taking in breath and living, then I think one would listen to the finale of the Third Symphony, the first of his great adagios, or the third movement, the adagio of the Fourth Symphony. And there you can feel perhaps two hearts beating together, and you may be able to feel something that he's trying to communicate. On the other hand, yeah, maybe you should just listen to the opening of the Sixth Symphony, to a movement that seems to predict the destruction of the world. Um, I know many people who, who, who felt that what Marlowe is saying here is very close to what Jeremiah was saying in Jerusalem when he's walking around and saying, repent before it's too late or the city will be destroyed. That's what Marlowe is saying to his society and his world. He's saying, you are Vienna with its whole false masks with its shine-über-sein, appearance over being, was always the most important thing in Vienna. It still is. It still is. It's not what you are, it's how you look. And Mahler is saying, for God's sake, stop this, or there's going to be a world war. Is that the piece for which Alma Mahler came up with a very nice formula, Anticipando Musizia? I thought that was a, right. the future that's rendered right. into music. That's I thought right. it was a very nice encapsulation of that. That's exactly it. And, and he, she said... That that's what Mahler called it. That's right. That's right. So he's he's not predicting the future like somebody with tea leaves, but he's he's analysing the present and saying, if we don't get some sense into our world, we're going to face absolute disaster. And then when you ask why Mahler in two thousand and ten, and you put that statement you suddenly see why Mahler becomes so relevant, why Mahler is so now, why he's so much the composer of our times. If we don't sort out what we're doing with the climate, what we're doing with the environment, what's going to happen? If we don't stop spending more than we earn, if we don't stop engaging in pointless wars and start talking to each other, if we don't respect each other as parallel cultures, if we don't, in our now multicultural cities, create spaces for dialogue between many different civilizations, then we're heading for exactly the disaster that Mahler predicts in the Sixth Symphony. And then, like Jeremiah, when the worst happens, he's there with the consolations of the ninth. <laughs> so Mahler, uh, Mahler is here, he's with us now. It's, it, it is when you really feel that when he said, my time will come, he didn't know when, and he didn't know how. But it's come, and it's now. Norman Labrest.
Why Mahler, How One Man and Ten Symphonies Changed the World, is out now in hardback. My second guest today is Francis Spufford, whose previous books include The Child That Books Built, in which he re-explored all the favourite books of his childhood, and I May Be Some Time, a cultural history of our fascination with ice and polar exploration. His latest book is called Red Plenty, and as his website teasingly asks, is it a novel, is it non-fiction? It all depends on your definition. It tells a true story, but it tells it as a story. Perhaps we should think of it as a novel of ideas, or else a non-fiction book which tests the boundaries of imaginative non-fiction to their limits. What we can say with certainty is that it looks at one of humanity's great dreams that failed, the Soviet Union's attempts in the 1960s to turn itself into a land of plenty from which want and shortages would be banished forever. But the fact that it failed does not mean that it was any the less real or intensely experienced as an ambition by the characters, both real and fictional, who inhabit the pages of Francis's book. When I met him at his home in Cambridgeshire recently, I began by asking him what had drawn him to this subject in the first place. I was interested in plenty before I was interested in, in red Soviet plenty. I think following the dot-com crash in the spring of 2000, I, I, I started wondering about how the psychology of, of the human desire for abundance works, which is very, very widely distributed. Um, then I thought the way, to, the way to handle this is to find a story of abundance to tell. And I realised that there was a kind of family of stories about, about abundance, different societies in the 20th century. And somewhere in there, I found I found the Soviet one and thought, hmm, this is interesting. This is, this is counterintuitive because it is, in fact, a version of the familiar story. But there are so many partitions between us and it of, of politics and culture and ideology and also just the, the kind of the incredibly blood-soaked and tragic history of the 20th century, which, which makes recognising similarities difficult. But if you're going to tell a story of plenty, it might as well be the least obvious one. It might as well be the one that brings out the universal part of this story, the way that everyone wants to live, where it is feast forever and never a fast again. You might as well tell it at the top of the steepest hill of, of, of difficulty and explanation you can find. Because for one thing, that will make it possible to feel the value of, of the plenty in question. One of the difficulties for us living amidst one of the successful versions of plenty, successful so far anyway, is that it's hard to feel something which is a, a steady, constant stimulus. It's hard to be as amazed as we ought to by the very, very odd place we live, historically speaking. We ought to we ought to be awed by every branch of, of Tesco's and Sainsbury's instead of which we, we take them for granted. So I needed I needed a place where the distant radiant prospect of a branch of Tesco's would be a goal that might justify almost anything. And the Soviet Union was not only seeking plenty, but it had nailed that ambition right at the top, you know, being a, an atheist materialist state. This was really the, the myth by which it was going to live or die, wasn't it? It had it was make or break, really, wasn't it? One of the things that's that's difficult for us is to get past the the kind of dismal austerity of later Soviet history as as we remember it from before 1991. And to remember that once upon a time, this really was a place premised on the promise of, of, of outrageous abundance. And yeah, because it was a materialist society, that was all there was, that the, the payoff had to be this worldly. They, they'd been incredibly scornful about about religion and, and pie in the sky. So the pie had to be presented, an actual, literal, material pie. There was a, there was a point in the second half of the 1950s when when the promise really did seem to be coming true, when Soviet growth, even measured in the most sceptical and ideologically hostile way, was, I think, the second best on the planet after after Japan, when Soviet citizens were palpably richer year by year. They were no longer living in damp, sorrowous tenements. They were, they were now in exciting new concrete flats with, with bathrooms. Um, they, were, they were dressed in new clothes. And on the strength of this, the regime, led by possibly the the last true believing general secretary, or maybe you should count Gorbachev as that, but anyway, 
a rash true believer in the shape of Khrushchev, promised that the rest of the climb up to abundance was happening, and not just happening soon or, or as a vague aspiration, but happening on a timetable, and that by 1980, Soviet citizens would be the richest people in the world. There was some wiggle room built in there. They, they carefully defined abundance so that, yeah, so that it did come down to socks, mashed potatoes, and shared use of a trombone. But nevertheless, they really meant abundance, kind of the overflowing horn of plenty. And, and they put in a comparative element too. They said richer than capitalism. They promised Russians that they would be richer than Americans an astonishingly innocent and stupid thing to, thing to do and I think a fascinating place to tell a story. And there's a there's a wonderfully blackly comic and possibly apocryphal story near the end of the book where a couple have buried in a time capsule the, the prognostications made in the early 60s about life in the 1980s. It may not be true, but there was a there was a rumour going around in, in emigre and dissident circles in the 1980s that a couple in Russia had dug up a homemade time capsule in which they'd buried the official 1961 party programme and read it out loud to people and been promptly arrested for spreading anti-Soviet propaganda because that document was forgotten with the, the heaviest, thickest blanket of amnesia that the Soviet state could muster. It was just so embarrassingly detailed in its promise of, of cybernetic good times. You said that you'd identified this as a, as a good story, but I imagine when, once you got into the research, there, there must have been quite a daunting element to it, you know, looking at, at steel seven-year plans and, and you know, the, the economic nitty-gritty and also the unreliability of a lot of it. How did you sort of cut through that or how did you approach that, that aspect of it and not become sort of crushed between a, you know, under a mountain of grain statistics? I cannot deny that part of the perverse attraction of the material to me was that it is legendarily boring. I suffer, I think, from some kind of faint kind of writer's machismo in which, in which I really like the idea of taking a notoriously boring subject and arm wrestling it into submission, whereupon it will give, give a little squeak and disclose something, something nice to read about. But also what's boring about the Soviet Union is, is the layer of official bullshit that covered everything. What isn't boring about the Soviet Union, what I didn't have to work to make interesting, is what happens as the official bullshit coexists with people's real lives. And right from the beginning, I knew that how I wanted to handle it was as something where the ideas were constantly being played off against the texture of experience, where you get all of the ironies of theory failing to become practice or practice arguing against theory. Somewhere where ideas full of human yearning, where they get checked by the this stubborn material reality of Soviet life. I wanted somewhere where where the greyness wasn't depressing, although maybe tragic, but was it was the source of a kind of comedy of greyness, somewhere where where the ideas were primary coloured and were constantly being called into question by by a grey a grey reality. I'm, I'm going to borrow you a metaphor of, of wrestling the material to the ground, and also your, your many allusions to fairy tales in the book. Because, because like in a fairy tale, when you begin to wrestle with this material, it seemed to me that it changed shape. It turned into something that that perhaps you hadn't expected it to be when you began to wrestle with it. When I first when I first started working on it, I was thinking in terms of a fairly conventional piece of nonfiction. And then I realised that actually that would give me only a limited and quite remote sense of the of the human reality which was checking and complicating the fine ideas. And that if I really wanted to make interesting things happen between ideas and experience, I would need to have the experience happening for the reader on the page. And the implication of that was that it became something much more like fiction, something where, where as you read it, you were, you were in the moment, which is, of course, a very interesting challenge to make it work for Western readers and also to make it to make it be something I could handle as a Western writer. I'm being as, as, as honest about this as I can. I do not speak Russian. I can, I've got a few tourist, yes, please, no, thank you, kind of, kind of phrases, and that's it. So everything 
I did came through the written word and through through talking to people and asking them to translate things and and also reading all of the stuff which the CIA bless them translated during during the Cold War. But I had I had to find a way of of doing human reality which which was quite far off for me as it as it would be for the readers. What I've got to is not quite a novel or if it is a novel it's a novel which has an awful lot to explain as i as i say at the beginning of the book it's i mean i i i came around to thinking that perhaps it's it's a novel which repudiates its own mm. novelistic character but but in fact you describe it right at the end in the end matter which of course is is not novelistic but you say it's it's um a halfway house on the borders of fiction. It seemed to me that it was it was kind of situated in in that in that interesting border zone, which is not not a not a widely populated zone. But you you had kind of pushed from nonfiction quite far towards fiction. I hope so. I, I hope I've I've pushed as far into fiction as I as I could get. In some ways, of course, I'd be really delighted if people took it as a as a novel and a novel of ideas. I was just aware all the way through that it, it keeps one necessary foot back in the world of, of of non-fiction because the thing it's got to impart is not just a piece of complicated private human experience. The thing that, that it wants to tell you is about how a bunch of private lives fitted together with with a big historical idea passing through those lives. And it's it's more idea shaped than it is life shaped in some ways. I have tried to make it as lively as I can, so that so that the characters are as rounded as I can make them, and they are full. I hope of life that feels like the life of people, certainly not the life of of animated mouthpieces for ideas. Nevertheless, this book looks away from them at various points when a novel would would go. Ah, here comes the good stuff, because. Red Plenty has to go kind of announce some economics. What it seemed to me that it enabled you to do was to go was to go back into the states of minds or to try to recreate the states of minds of those people in the, the late 50s, the early 60s, when, as you said before, things did seem possible. Optimism and idealism were in the air rather than with the, the sort of heavy weight of, of later knowledge, which I suppose a non-fiction book would find very difficult to resist. But it's very striking that those characters in the, in the early section of the book are very young and, and full of the, the sense of, of what's possible, aren't they? There was a very hopeful generation in, in, in the Soviet Union in the 60s, which not by any coincidence at all were then the middle-aged generation who supported Gorbachev 20 years later. And without telling lies about Soviet reality, without denying the darkness of it at all, I wanted to to insist on there being in the mixture something which is in some respects harder for us to see in the West because we've got the story of the Soviet tragedy running so loud and clear in our heads that the hardest thing for us is to understand how anybody could ever have thought it was a, a hopeful a hopeful place to live in. My characters pretty much without exception, I mean, though Khrushchev is a, is a partial exception, know less about the kind of the main disastrous events of their own country than we do as readers. They are people with restricted information, and that's one of the grounds on which they can be hopeful. But it's also true that the Soviet Union provided something which a lot of its citizens valued, which was a, a version of modern life, which they were rather proud of. And yes, it had been incredibly costly in in human terms creating it. But that was a reason to hang on to the achievements in some ways, because who would wish to have suffered for no reason? Who would Who would wish to have a history which is only tragic? And at that point, the Soviet story appears to be heading onwards and upwards, kind of away from tragedy towards something better. They don't know in 1961 that the arc of the thing descends again at the end towards towards it being a country full of antiquated tractor factories run by run by sick old men with kidney diseases, which is a kind of global byword for for futility. They don't know that they are within a hope which we're in danger of forgetting about because it doesn't fit very well into the the story we tell now looking back 
how great and what was the nature of the challenge which faced the Soviet economy? Because a, a lot, a lot, a lot of the, the book is taken up with grappling with just that mm. challenge, because it it kind of didn't obey the classical Marxist trajectory of socialism grown out of mature capitalism. So there was a, it was it was sort of they were having to write the the roadmap themselves, weren't they? The, the rule book didn't really exist for what they had to do. So what, what were they attempting to do? The Soviet Union was on uncharted ground in terms of in terms of Marxist theory because Marx had said that socialism would come in really advanced capitalist societies where capitalism had done all the construction work and the victorious socialists could pretty much take over a kind of a high-tech system perfect it and then and then run it for everyone's benefit instead of which it came in the poorest country in Europe so the Bolsheviks after one quick disastrous experiment in just saying let's ordain paradise by law at the beginning which didn't work the bolsheviks had to to do the job that capitalism had done elsewhere they had to have an industrial revolution they had to to get people literate and and train them and build roads and railways and things and electrify i mean the thing lenin's thing about about socialism being being soviet power plus electrification sounds amazingly crude but but it, it goes to the nub of the problem which is that they really had no electrification in in 1917 so with immense brutality they took virtually the whole the whole proceeds of the economy in the 1930s and they industrialized by force they prevented people from from having you know, really any income worth spending on consumer goods and spent all of the money on on crash industrialization first step of industrialization steel coal electricity and that they did pretty successfully though at immense human cost and and their growth rate they, you know their, their growth their growth rate was was tremendous through through the 1950s the problem was that to do the next stage they needed another industrial revolution to to move them on from coal and steel onto plastics and pharmaceuticals and artificial fibers and um, early computers and things like like that and they had committed themselves in the 1930s to to an economic setup that made it astonishingly difficult ever to change the first set in stone structures that that had happened under under stalin so the people I'm talking about, idealists, people with, with some genuinely impressive mathematics at their, at their fingertips, came up with the idea of basically improving the Soviet Union's software. The hardware was, was, was very hard to get at, but if but, you know, running, running a different and cleverer program, you could, you could move onwards through the next stages of industrialization to the, to the goal of, of, of red plenty. The problems there being that that would only work if the Soviet Union really worked the way it said on the tin. You can only change the software of a system successfully if you know what the system has got in it. Um, and one of the sets of ironies that I'm talking about in Red Plenty is that you know, the Soviet Union did not function the way that political descriptions of it said it did, certainly not the way that innocent scholars thought it did, which is why in the middle of the book, I've got a section which is some real industry solving problems in a way which has nothing at all to do with the ideas in in the rest of the book. So, so I suppose, I mean, I suppose it's, it's, it's a source of, of some of the comedy, but also the, the ultimate tragedy, this mismatch between these yeah. high ideals, the intellectual effort expended on them, and reality on, on the ground. I mean this to be a kind of, a kind of comedy about things things getting out of control rather like Chaplin's film Modern Times for example where, where the, the, the production line just carries you carries you off something happens in the Soviet Union which is which is and it's, it's maybe it's more like the sorcerer's apprentice um, a process is begun that they cannot stop the reason for all that heavy industry in the Soviet Union was to prepare the ground for the rest of prosperity instead of which the turnout not to be any linkages between the heavy industry and, and any other economic goal they might want. So the heavy industry just goes on producing more heavy industry and even more heavy industry. You cut the broomstick in half and both bits pick up the buckets and carry on drawing the water until by the end, by Gorbachev and Perestroika, the Soviet Union has more of its economy devoted to heavy industry than any other society in history ever. They have more steel and coal and electricity than anybody could ever want. Um, 
but they no longer have any way of of using it and use is the achilles heel of the whole system and that's got a philosophical irony of its own because they they had prided themselves that they were they were producing for use capitalism produces for profit which as everyone knows is a, a semi-fictional accounting thing look at enron and the soviet union would produce bags of cement for people who needed bags of cement the trouble is that without prices that make any sense it turns out it's very very difficult to produce the right number of bags of cement so the soviet union ends up on this terrible runaway cycle of producing less and less useful things it's it's as if it's as if human wishes had had got away from us and had taken up an independent disastrous new life and made us made us their servants not an accident that actually that's astonishingly like Marx's description of what's bad about capitalism there is a a desperate ironic mirror imaging going on in here in, in which the Bolsheviks reinvent what's worst about capitalism only worse still I, th- I think you say at one point an economist calculated that the Soviet economy is actually subtracting value by using all these primary ingredients in order to produce things which nobody actually used or wanted. It was actually taking value away. This this vast machine, you know, would actually have been better off just being switched off rather than doing what it was doing. Yeah, the 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 economist I'm I'm thinking of said very nicely and neatly that by the end the Soviet Union was taking cotton which you could have sold for actual money on the world market and turning it into shirts quotes so hideous that even Soviet citizens were unwilling to wear them and at the same time let's stick stick with the cotton harvest another another favorite dreadful true fact of mine um by the end their means of telling what was going on out in the country were were so poor and there were so many lies in the system that the kgb was trying to measure the cotton crop using spy satellites there are moments in the book where this mismatch between what is planned and what happens have have very serious tragic consequences i'm thinking of the the massacre that takes place in Novocherkask. Can you can you say a bit about how that came about? The Novocherkask massacre is is purposely in the middle of the book. It's among all the atrocious things that happened in the Soviet times. This one is particularly painful because it's the consequence of an enlightened attempt to do better. Khrushchev had taken advice from reforming economists and was trying his best to be to be a good anti-stalinist so when they said you should raise the price of meat so we could pay more to collective farmers and that will improve the supply of meat he did it and he made what for the Soviet Union was one of the the most honest attempts to explain himself that ever happened there were full page newspaper advertisements saying we know we don't usually raise prices this is why we're doing it and instead of the the grateful populace going oh they're trusting us they rioted and in the town of Novocherkask there was a kind of uprising which was very bloodily suppressed and nobody knew about it except the immediate witnesses um, and people at the top of Soviet politics and for the whole of the rest of the Soviet time they never raised food prices again they they felt they had learned from experience that that was disastrous but the only route to kind of economic rationality in the Soviet Union, whether it's socialist rationality or, or capitalist rationality, would have depended on the prices people paid for things having some relationship to the difficulty of of producing them. Novocherkask, in a grim and tragic way, prevented the Soviet Union from ever again trying trying to be sensible about the prices of things. You talked about allowing fictional characters into this book and what that enabled you to do. But tell me how you actually went about that, you know, this this intermingling of real characters, real events with imagined characters and events. How did you, because it struck me the plotting of it, the, the planning of it must have been a major, it must have been a, <laughs> a similar sort of seven-year plan kind of um, complexity. Once I knew I was writing fictional kind of fiction, I knew I wanted... I wanted a I wanted a blend of real people and and unreal people. If I said I wanted to do what Tolstoy did, that will make me sound immensely big-headed. I wanted to do what Tolstoy did, except far far worse for the record, where he he let himself bring Napoleon into into War and Peace. I wanted Khrushchev up there at the top as a as a character and I wanted 
the real scientists who are involved in in the mathematical economics I'm I'm talking about, but around them and particularly to kind of to register the effects of the ideas, I wanted I wanted a world and a world that was kind of connected laterally. You're asking how I how I plotted it, and 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 the answer is by kind of pursuing the lateral sideways connections between the characters' lives. I wanted them to be to be joined by cause and effect rather than by being in a conventional way in the same story. So it's not really about one fictional world. It's about a whole group with the same effects knocking on through those separate worlds so that ideas which one person is thinking a good idea in one place will turn up completely anonymous and not even recognised in, in, in somebody else's life, having having the most private of effects. But again, I wanted these to be, so far as possible, real characters. So I wasn't trying to devise an economic effect and then think of somebody to illustrate it. I was thinking of, if anything, I, I thought of I thought of good places, good good ways I should be looking, and then tried to find real people to to occupy those places and then thought about process and how to show things happening in their lives once I'd once I'd got them. There are quite a lot of characters in it, but they kind of interlace. All the stories do come to an end, though sometimes by by implication. The other thing I did have slightly in my head is David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas. I mean his pattern there is is mirror image with, with the mirror placed exactly halfway through halfway through the book. So his stories are nested. My stories are not tidily nested, but they are all dropped and then resumed again so that we can see, I suppose, essentially hope turning to disappointment in all of those lives with surprises about how it does it and surprises in how the stories end up being connected. I suppose there's probably a kind of, there's a conflict for any novelist between the desire for formal neatness and the desire to produce something which feels lifelike and all novels are compromises. My compromise, I hope, is one which doesn't subordinate the characters to the pattern of the whole book, but which nevertheless preserves a pattern. Francis Spufford. Red Plenty is available in hardback, and the book has an accompanying website at redplenty.com. You can read Norman Lebrecht's nevertheless stimulating blog on the arts world by going to his website at normanlebrecht.com. There are full details about both of the authors in this podcast and all their books on the Faber website at faber.co.uk. And do also check out the Faber blog at thethoughtfox.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I hope you'll join me again next month for more conversations with authors. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.